Welcome to episode 63 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. And on today's show, we have a very special guest with us, Travis Kalanick, who's a successful entrepreneur. And by successful entrepreneur, I mean he has a resume with line items on it like sold a company to Akamai for 19 million. Hey, Travis, thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> hey, good to be here. Thank you. <laughs> so, Jason, what's the backstory on how we met Travis? Yeah, so I met Travis at a TechCrunch party back in 2005, and I, I mentioned this story in, the, in last weekend's uh, show. And essentially what happened is I drove up to uh, the TechCrunch party, which is in uh, Palo Alto somewhere, and it was like a six-hour drive here from L.A., and I didn't know anyone there. And there was like 400 people. Everybody seemed to know everybody else, and it just sucked because I'm walking around this party, and I didn't know anybody. And so I ended up just going to the fire pit. And by the way, I'll give people advice. If you're ever at a party and you don't know what to do and you don't know anybody, go stand by the fire pit because everybody eventually comes by. And you can stand there and not look like an idiot. So I was standing there, and after a while, Travis walked up with a friend of his, and he's just like started a conversation like, hey, what are you working on? And we started talking, and uh, – he became friends, essentially, from that point on, I guess. Is that about right, Travis? Yeah, we, we basically, we had a bromance, we had a bromance at the tech company. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, let's just be real, Jason. Let's cut to the chase. Well, I like to keep some, some to the imagination, leave some to the imagination. But yeah, and, and then Travis came down, you came down like uh, a few months later, six months later, when I co-hosted the Bar Camp LA, the first Bar Camp LA. Yeah. And then we hung out a little bit then, too. So, Well, my company at the time, Red Swoosh, sponsored that uh, Bar Camp. That's right. That's right. So now Travis has a has kind of some, a lot of interesting stuff that's going to be, be fun to get into. But um, you know, when we first met, you know, back in two thousand five, Red Swoosh was just this tiny little thing. It was like you and you had like at that point like one developer, right? Well, there, there, yeah. I mean, at at that point, there were different times in two thousand five where at some point I had no developers. Like I was the only guy. Um, and, and at different points I had one or two developers during okay. 2005. Yeah. Yeah. So, so going we, since, well, real quick, I'd be going since 2001. Right. So yeah. They, I, I just, I just meant to bring up the fact that when we met, I mean, you were just, a, you, you didn't really have much going on. I mean, you were still struggling like the rest of us. So Travis didn't become successful until we had known each other for a while. He was just like yet another guy struggling, trying to make something happen. Well, look, I, I'd put it a little differently, Jason. <laughs> okay. I had, I had a lot going on. Okay. All right. It was, uh, I, was, I was getting it done by myself or with a very, very small team. Okay. So, well, let's, let's start from the beginning. I mean, you know, now you're an angel investor. You've been a successful entrepreneur. But when you first started, um, was back in college at UCLA, right? And you started yeah. – you- co-founded a company called Scour. Yeah. Is that, is that correct? Back at that's, that's right. You got it. I mean, basically, nope. Scour was, well, we can get it. I mean, Scour was the internet's first multimedia search engine or first P2P search engine. Started in 97 by a bunch of friends. I came, uh, like in December 97, I came on board with my buddies. We were all CS buddies, computer science buddies at UCLA. Uh, I came on board with those guys in 98. We were, it was just scour.cs.ucla.edu. It's like this project we were just working on. Right. Now, what year were you in school when you did this? Uh, let's see. I think that was my junior year or senior year, something like that. 
Now, was this the kind of thing that a couple of your friends had started up and they asked you to jump in? Or were you just like a handful of guys sitting around brainstorming one day and then you just started working on it? I mean, how did the whole thing get started? I mean, you tell us the story, you know? Yeah, yeah. so what happened was there's this guy, Vince Bussum, who sort of, he was one of our buddies. He just sort of built this thing that, well, okay, let me give you the context. The context is 97, you're at school, you're, you're at a university the only way you have broadband in 1997 is being at a university. Everybody was sending emails. There was no search engine for big files. There was no YouTube. There was no place to get this stuff. Everybody was sending files, either crazy images or funny videos or MP3s. And we said, you know, literally, if you wanted a song that you didn't rip yourself, you'd have to have one of your friends email it to you. Right. 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 And so and, and let's not even get, you know, if you didn't have broadband, that's just not going to happen. And so, um, and so, yeah, so we, we said, man, wouldn't it be nice? We would sit in the computer science undergrad association lounge, which we would either play double dragon or, or hack stuff. <laughs> and, and Bayes were like, wouldn't it be nice to be able to search all that stuff? Right. right. And, uh, well, there you go. I mean, basically Vince just sort of on his own, just did this little thing. It was just hosted at scour.cs.ucla.edu. And, you know, it was just sort of a side project at the time for fun. So where did it go? Uh, what do you mean by where did it go? Well, as in, um, it, was, it, was it monetized? Did it become commercially viable? All so, that kind of stuff. So the idea, just real quick, the tech, and I'll tell you exactly where it went. The tech was, for context, the tech was we would crawl all the Windows share directory folders on all the dorm networks in, in the U.S. And we would index that. You would go to the website, you'd search for Britney Spears or whatever the hell you want to find. And uh, Jason, I know you're a big Britney Spears fan. Yeah, you know, I have a poster of her on my ceiling. <laughs> I'm sure your wife loves that. Um, so, so, yeah, so you would search for that and then you'd have this helper app, which would download over the window share protocol um, the stuff that was sitting in these window shares. And you got to remember, there are no firewalls. There's no such thing as a firewall at that time. So if your machine was on the internet in any way, you were basically, you were, you were right out there. And you had a Windows network share folder. You had a share folder. That was, that was, that was lots of goodness. <laughs> and so where did it go? Basically, we launched this thing. And pretty soon, very quickly, every, every university student in the country, or very close to that, was basically using us to get their MP3s, to get their wares, to get their video that, you know, our search engine was finding on all these computers around the country. It was P2P old school, right? It was the Samba protocol. It was crazy. Now, okay, Napster came into being after that, or was that right at the same time? So we we started killing it. We Uh basically got to several million users by mid-99, Right. Wow. Okay. And by August of 99, a buddy of mine, a guy, a guy named Angelo Satira, who's the founder and CEO of DeviantArt, by August of 99, and he's way deep into sort of IRC, Usenet, BBS, like Wares community, that whole thing, you know. Uh, right. And he was like, um, a buddy of mine, this guy named Napster, that was his handle created this thing called Napster and dudes, you better fricking watch out is what right. he said. That was August of 99. Nobody knew about Napster yet. Right. 
And what, what the, the difference was we were crawling all these dorm networks, indexing the content and putting it up. You know, you could go to the search engine and find it. The problem was, is that we got so popular, millions of students or millions of people around the country and around the world started going to our site, searching for this stuff and downloading it. The right. problem was, is there were, there were too many people and they were, they were, you know, everybody had Windows 95 boxes in the dorms. Those Windows 95 boxes would, uh, would get, would basically crash if they got more than 25 concurrent connections. Right. And so you get to 25 concurrent TCP connections, game over. So all these machines were crashing. Our index would basically have a bunch of crappy files that are no longer available. Our reliability of the links in our search index would go down. And so we'd have to expand our search or crunch the search more often to make sure the links were good. And then we would get more popular and then the same problem would happen again. What Napster brought to the table was they made it so that when you got a file, you automatically shared it. Okay. Where what we did is the, the indexing and searching and crawling was separate than the downloading. And you would download it, and a lot of people would put it in their share folder because they knew that Scour would index it, and then they could share back. But it wasn't automatic. Okay. And so was there ever was there an upside to it? I mean, I, I, so I'm understanding where it didn't work, but was there an upside to it financially, or did you guys move on to other things? So we got sued for a quarter of a trillion dollars by 33 of the largest media companies in the world. Now, um, that's something you can put on your resume. That's, that's mean, another line item right there with $17 million there sale. Go. There you go. I mean, I mean if, you, if, you, if you made a list of, 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 of people, the amount that people or companies have been sued for, you probably would rank up there one of the, most, the highest, the largest lawsuits of all time, right? Absolutely. And what I'll also add, those are, those are $2,000, right? You, right. you bring inflation in this, I'm guessing we're like half a trillion dollars now. So, so half a trillion in $2,010. Anyways, I'm just kind of messing around. But, yeah. but the bottom line is we got sued. We made a strategic move of declaring Chapter 11. And what that means is uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy means all your liabilities sort of go into this bucket. All litigation gets essentially stayed. And the bankruptcy court handles that while you continue to operate. Right. And so the, the, the media guys were really scared of a precedent, a copyright precedent being set by a bankruptcy court in a couple of weeks instead of them being able to stretch it out over several years and just squeeze us. Right. And so they settled with us for a million bucks cash. We paid them a million bucks cash, turned the technology off, and sold the company for $10 million, which is what we raised in funding and so basically we all had employment contracts and made a little coin, but nothing substantial. And uh, that was, that was the scour story. Okay. Now you were, so this was, oh, this lasted over about a two year period from 97 to 99. This basically was like December 97 through December 2000. So you're still in school this time or did you guys all drop out? Or are you going part time? Most or of us, most of us dropped out by 98, 99. I mean, we got funding in July or sorry, we got funding in sort of mid 99. Right. I was like on the phone with Michael Ovitz. He was one of our investors, like in physics lab that doesn't scale. (laughs) So, so like teachers couldn't understand why I had to take the call. It was really weird. So, (laughs) 
Right. So yeah, we, most of no, us. No, for people who don't know, Michael Ovitz was he was what like the chairman or whatever of Disney or something like that. He well? was he was he founder of CAA, which was one of the largest agencies. He's Ari. He's essentially Ari Gold in Entourage, except even more badass and bigger than that. <laughs> okay. Right. Then he became president of Disney, and then of course he he became an investor in Scour. That's that's really next on that list. Yeah, that's the pinnacle right there. <laughs> uh, exactly right <laughs> so okay so you guys are you guys are dropping out of school you're you're killing it building this you know downloadable software you get investment and who did you get investment from yeah so we got investment from michael ovitz right uh -huh. and another guy named ron burkle who was one of these sort of leverage buyout billionaire types that worked with michael milken in the 80s and he wow. basically did leverage buyouts in the, in the supermarket space. But basically, at this point, he's a media mogul. He sits on Yahoo's board. Uh, he's just a billionaire dude in Los Angeles, right? How did you guys get hooked up with, with Ovitz and Bergelman? Well, those two at the time were friends, and we, they're connected to UCLA. And, and we were doing some stuff and then got introed from one place to another. And then eventually it just ended up, we got a call from one of Ovitz's people basically saying, you know, we want to talk to you guys, think you're doing some interesting stuff. All right. And so when you guys sold out and shut it down and everything, mm -hmm. um, Napster was pretty much in, in your same situation, right? They got, they got sort of shut down too, right around that yeah. time. Yeah. The, the difference between us and Napster on this front is that we quickly, we quickly like turned, you know, went to the chapter 11 approach thinking it was going to basically do the best. It was the best thing for the shareholders. Um, and it probably was right. So the, whereas Napster, what they did is they kept raising more money to fund the lawsuit and to fund their activities Right. So Napster ended up selling for like a million dollars at the end of the day because they just got they just got reamed and just worked. Right. You know, by the media guys over and over and over again. And it's just like they just they went big. They flamed out hard. Right. So um, that was sort of the different approaches, whereas we sort of like we sort of took this more, I don't know if you want to call it a conservative approach or a pragmatic approach. They sort of were like, we are going to flame out hard. Right. And that's why everybody knows the Napster name, right? I mean, they, they went about it that way. Um, at the end of the day, you know, they, they lost, I don't know, a hundred million dollars or something, you know, and sold for a million bucks, you know? It's, it's so right around that time. Now, it wasn't long after when you decided to transition into uh, Red Swoosh, right? So yeah. why don't you tell us a little bit about the aftermath of Scour and how you, how you moved into doing Red Swoosh. So, so we had millions of people like concurrently connected into the system where you could pull data, you know, data slash files from all these different machines. We were like, you know, and we felt we had far superior technology than, than the other peer-to-peer -peer systems at the time. We said, why don't we take, the idea was, why don't we take our peer-to-peer -peer expertise, you know, our know-how there that we we'd clearly established, and turn those 33 litigants into customers with the same technology. Let's right. get those guys who sued us and get them to pay us right. for the same stuff. Hmm. And um, the idea was basically, let's become Akamai, which is sort of a content delivery network, 
um, for maybe some of the people who listen to your stuff who don't know. It's, you know, they have 100,000 servers placed around the world. They work with websites so that when you click on that website's link, instead of going to the central server that hosts it, you go to the closest machine of Akamai's um, and pull the data down from there. And it, it basically, it's like a caching system that's much more efficient and much more high performance. We want to do the same thing as that, except peer-to-peer, which basically means, you know, if you go to YouTube, you click on a link and you watch a video, you, and it's peer-to-peer, it means you, you know, you don't see it, but you're getting your YouTube experience, but behind the scenes, it's pulling from 30 peers behind the scenes that have already gotten the file. And now YouTube is saving millions, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars on bandwidth and infrastructure to deliver that file. And that was the pitch, right? Is turn the peer-to-peer stack into something that's visible that you see and that you search with into a peer networking stack that you don't see that's behind the scenes, that's like your TCP protocol except something different that makes the internet more efficient and saves a lot of people, especially, you know, in the content delivery space, a hell of a lot of money. And when you came up, now was it your idea, or did all of you guys think of it together? And and you know, how did how did this group come? I mean, who went who went who went uh, their separate way, and who jumped on the the uh, yeah, red swoosh bandwagon? That's interesting. So that this was my idea, um, and you know, started working. You know, I worked with one of my co-founders at Scour. We we got going on red swoosh. So it was me and him. And we slowly peeled off at some point, at one point or another, almost all of the sort of hardcore original Scour team was working for Swoosh at one point or another. Wait, how many, other, how many guys were there who, from the Scour team altogether? Well, at our biggest, we were 75 people. Uh, oh, geez. But sort of if you talk about the core team, you're talking about like seven or eight guys. Okay. Right. So... Um, so, yeah, so we just got going and we're bringing people into it, you know, in, in a sort of strategic fashion. When we got started because you don't want to split, you know, Scour was split like six, seven different ways, you know, as far as founders or near founders. Right. And and, you know, we would have to sell for a hell of a lot of money to make real money. And um, right. and so we, we just did things a certain way where we basically had the. The two guys just found it, and then everybody else we would pull in strategically um, as we were putting our team together. Uh, okay. So, yeah. And uh, well, so how, how long how, how long did it take before you got going on Red Swoosh? Was it something like two three no. weeks went by and you just jumped yeah, on two, it, or two three weeks went by? I mean, and I you know we were just I it was off to the races, right? So probably, probably one of the the crazier moves in my career. Well, you know what they all saying? No balls, no blue chips. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like no brains, man. No blue chips. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. So anyways, so what happened was, is, uh, yeah, so my, my, my founder, my co-founder didn't really make it out of 2000. We started January 1. He didn't really make it out of 2001 and intact. It was just like such a hard year for networking software and the dot-com bubble blowing, blowing up. He just couldn't take the risk and he couldn't take the hardcore shit that was going on all around us. You know, it was just, it was, it was a desert, man. It was like, it was like nuclear Holocaust out there and he just (laughs) couldn't take that risk. So he just moved on 
And, uh, and I was sort of running the show from that point on myself. And did he want to, did, did all these guys go back to school and finish up or did they, did they, some just- of them did, some of them did, some of them didn't. Um, and, uh, you know, when we first started swoosh, we were like, you know, it was sort of six or seven people ultimately. And we got through that first year doing consulting work or things like that. But we eventually ran out of money, you know, right around September 11th and, uh, nine 11 because consult everything, everything stopped at that point. I mean, I literally had two VCs in my office, two separate VCs in my office, September 10th. That was a Monday. Right. Maybe it was the Friday before. I can't remember. Basically saying we will get you, we'll get you a term sheet by the end of the week. Okay. And when September 11th happened, you know, of course I'm calling them like, Hey, where's the term sheet? Da, da, da. You know, let's get this thing going. We were out of money. Right. Right. I didn't hear from these guys. They just like, I couldn't even get a hold of these guys for like two months. Just disappeared. They just told me that they'll give me a term sheet and then they freaking disappeared. Hey, I wow. have a question for you. Um, when your co-founder left, yeah. now that, that must be a difficult scenario because you guys have certain ownership in the company yeah. and, then, and then he leaves uh, without yeah. sort of getting into the details yeah. of, of percentages, etc. How did you deal with that scenario? Well, typically the way this is dealt with is, you know, even founder shares vest over a period of four years, right? I see. That's typically how these things are dealt with. That's not exactly how our, that how our stuff was dealt with from the beginning, but that's ultimately how it ended up. It makes sense. In fact, yeah, I, I remember um, in some of, some of my dealings um, that, that people said that, you, that I would need to vest my shares in that way as well as the founder. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just the right thing to do for everybody because it's like, you know... You know, there's no reason somebody should spend nine months working on something and then get the same reward as a dude who goes through six years, four years of which he's not paying himself. Yeah. You know, it just, you know, it's just not the same commitment or energy. You know, it just doesn't make sense. Right. So, so, okay. So then what happens? You're, you're, you're broke. The, the VCs disappear on you. It's 2001. What happens? Um, VCs disappear. Yeah. So. So basically, you know, my team was at the, the point where we ran out of money, we're like at six or seven, we quickly scaled down to two and it, it happened over a period of time, but we quickly scaled down to two. Two being you and two other guys or you and one guy? Oh, actually, no, wait, hold on a second. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. So it was six, seven guys. We ran out of money. Dude, this story is so nuts. You have no idea. <laughs> so we ran out of money. And then we had Disney as a customer and they were using our stuff. So there's like good stuff happening. Holy cow. Disney who sued us a year ago right. is now using our stuff. Holy shit. Right. And so that kept the team going. We were cranking and doing good stuff and they were using it. We're like, Oh my God, Disney is using peer to peer. You've got to be kidding me. And so that kept us going, we ran out of money and we went like three months without anybody getting paid. Okay. And that's hardcore. Yeah. Hey, well, how are you? How are you supporting yourself? Were your parents loaning you money, or did you just have a little bit of extra cash from I had the? A little uh, bit of extra yeah. cash because my first company I did as a freshman at UCLA was an SAT prep company, and I put money in 1996 into Nokia. Okay. And it went 32x by 2000. Oh. So, wow. Okay. So, so we went three months without pay. 
my co-founder was like, he couldn't deal. So <laughs> I don't even want to get into the ugly stories of how not being able to deal like ends up in reality. It's <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> Holy cow. If we were having beers right now, maybe I'd give you a little more juice, <laughs> but it was fucked up. Okay. Right. Bottom line is, um, not to mention there were accounting issues. Uh, there are accounting issues uh, where the IRS was not getting their withholdings. So we owed the IRS $100,000 and we had $1,500 in the bank. And we went three months without getting paid. And I got a company, I got a firm to basically give us a $300,000 note when we owed $100,000 to the IRS, which is just fucked up. That's like, that in and of itself, that's like jacked up. Well, and, you know, it, and, but, we had, and we had an additional hundred grand that we had in back pay for the three months that our engineers were working. Right. So we well, then have a hundred grand left after we got this 300K thing. And before we got that 300K thing and Disney's using us and we're all scrapping and like nobody's gotten paid, the, the morale was never higher. The minute we got the 300K and it wasn't enough, everybody's scrapping for the scraps and the morale was never lower. So it was a really interesting lesson. Um, it was really interesting sort of psychological dynamic that I saw, but basically coming out of that investment, we basically had to put our entire team on part-time because they're like, look, I know you want to stretch out the hundred grand you have left, but if you want to pay us part-time again or no time, you know, you pay us part-time, we're going to work part-time. So then for the next few months, they're working part-time, I'm paying them part-time, and I'm trying to get the next slug of money from like a customer or whatever. I, I'm talking to Cable and Wireless, which is a huge telecom company, and they basically, what happened? So they, they were super interested in us, multi-billion dollar telecom company, interested in using our stuff to, to sort of compete against Akamai. And, uh, and I had to have a call with them where I said, look, you know, I did this emergency urgent call with their chief strategic officer. I said, look, you guys love our stuff. I know that you guys are amped. Your entire senior management team loves our stuff. Um, if you want to use it, you're going to have to pay us because if you don't pay us now, we're going to go out of business and you'll never be able to use this technology. It was the, I'm going to take my toys and go home clothes. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he said, how much do you want? I said, 150 grand. He said, done. <laughs> I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? What You're like, I'm sorry, did I say 150? I made 150 per month. <laughs> yeah. So, so that happened, and then I leveraged that deal with cable and wireless to get to get uh, funding from August Capital, which was five hundred thousand dollars. Okay. Um, that was actually a term sheet for ten million, is what I saw signed with August. But they wanted a co-investor. They put in five. The other guy put in five. I said, put your money where your mouth is. I want five hundred k to start. Right. They put in 500K. We used 300K of that 500 to pay off the crazy fuck 300K guys that we got before. <coughs> we right. just paid the note off because those guys were nuts. <laughs> so Why were they nuts? Were they like the mafioso or something? They, they, they were crazy. Don't even but, get but, but sorry, you, you paid them off or did they retain any stake in, this, no, in the show? No, 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 no. We paid them off. And don't even get me started about how we got that done. But basically... <laughs> Basically, now we have 200 grand left and we got to go find a co-investor to get this $10 million deal done. 
Right. We find co-investor. Disney wants to co-invest, but, but August didn't want Disney as a co-investor. Right? Why? They wanted, Why? I don't know. Wasn't a Mayfield or Sequoia or whatever. Okay. And we just got left hanging. And wow. in the meantime, I built this whole senior management team. We got our team up to like 13 or 14. We were up, we were based in the Bay Area. You know, the whole nine had a, you know, the whole thing. And then, then we had to scale down because we ran out of money building all this big team and they balked on the $10 million round, right? Right. And so that's what these co-investment deals, I freaking hate them. When somebody says, oh, I'm going to lead the deal, but you need to get somebody else to the party. It's like, you're not a leader. You're a follower. I'll go find a lead, you know? Right, right. right. So that's why I made them put in the 500K in the first place because I thought, you know, I've just, in 2002, man, you had to be a scrappy, gnarly, crazy dude to get any kind of funding. And you just had to, you had to scratch and claw and fight and bite to get your stuff. You know, it, it reminds me of a, one of my favorite quotes that my dad used to say all the time, which was, when the, he said, when it's, uh, when it's too tough for everyone else, it's just right for me. Man, that, that, yeah. you know, that works for so long. Anyways, we had to scale down. So we ran out of money. Then we scaled down to two people, me and one engineer, this guy named Evan Sang, who is a great engineer. He works at Google. I highly recommend people hire them if they can, hire him if they can. But anyways, he... Um, we then went, you know, we'd been through a whole year of crazy stuff. We went another three years, just me and him trying to, you know, I'm trying to, I'm going out and getting customers. I'm like, sort of like, I'm like the architect, the technical architect, CTO. He's getting shit done day in, day out, me and him shoulder to shoulder. And, uh, you know, we're basically got enough revenues to pay the bills. Wait, look, can I should, let me just go back one question. Okay, so you, ha- you brought in these people, like you brought in the senior management team, and then you had, you had to downsize, and you August Capital, and then they're out. I mean, the ownership structure's got to get really complicated at this point, right? I mean, are, are all these people still have some percentage ownership, or what was going on with the... No, no, because, no, not at all. Be, well, I mean, there were some options to other people. There was certainly the co-founder, right? Right, the but guy that- who left after nine months? Yeah. So, you know, there was something there, but it wasn't, it wasn't much. Basically at this point, I basically own 80% of the company. The, um, you know, the, the August capital note, which is the only money outstanding at this point, it's just a convertible note. So there's no equity associated with it. Right. You you just managed to wear everyone down. Like they just thought, they just thought, okay, nothing's happening with this, but you just stuck in there. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the day, you got, you got your payday. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's so, an amazing story. Yeah, so the bottom line is went a few more years. Mark Cuban invested in 2005, uh, you know, sort of beginning of 2005. And then, okay, okay, wait, wait, back up, back up. You, you know, that, how the hell do you even get in contact with Mark Cuban? I mean, that's like, that's, that's, that's just there, right? All right, so I first ran into Mark Cuban when I was at Scour. We were obviously indexing the internet for all the good audio files that we could find. He was running broadcast.com. We would, we would crawl broadcast.com servers for all these freaking audio files okay. right? and video files. And we would just scrape his links. And then when somebody would, those links would show up on our search results, people would click. They'd go straight to the, the audio. It was beautiful. Right. Uh, but 
Broadcast.com's, um, and at the time it was AudioNet, their business model was to sell advertising, but they couldn't sell banner ads when we just took their links. He would say, stop, the, he would call us up in our, you know, essentially our dorm room, our apartment there, UCLA. <laughs> he would call us up and say, stop deep linking to my streams. He's like, love you guys, you're awesome, but stop deep linking to my streams. Okay. And, um, and we would turn it off. You know, we would stop linking those streams. And then like a few days later, we turn it back on. Have you have you made uh, have you had a lot of success by turning enemies into friends and customers? Uh, maybe. I don't know. I never thought about that way. But like bottom line is didn't really talk to Mark at all. And then in 2004, he I'm on this list. It was called the Fallist. It was this listserv, which is copyright and technology coming together. Right. Okay. And Mark would post on there sometimes, you know, a bunch of people in the know and sort of entertainment and media and tech would, would just have these interesting discussions. And Mark, you know, at some point was like, you know, P2P is shit. You know, it's just this is horrible stuff. You know, I don't get it, whatever. Everybody knows on this list who I am, you know, just because I've been there a while. So I stepped up and Mark and I had a flame war on this list for like a week, something <laughs> like that. And then at the end of it, he sort of sends me a private note. I was interested. Right. So, so your flame convinced him that P2P was an interesting technology. Yeah, we, you know, I wouldn't say we were being making it personal, right? We were we were being objective, rational, etc., but passionate nonetheless, you know. Well, it's like I guess if you demonstrate yourself to be a worthy opponent, you become potentially a worthy ally. Yeah, so okay. you know, he he believes in scrappy sort of go get them entrepreneurs and I think that's probably what he saw in what I was doing. So it, so did you just contact him at some point and, and say, hey, we're well, I held him off. I held him off for a while because I didn't have anything for him to invest in. And then there was this AOL deal that was getting going where I was doing this big deal with them. And he knows Leonsis at AOL. And so we, you know, we tried to, we tried to, you know, work some of that. And I said, okay, let's, you know, let's do an investment. So then we did it. So okay. when you when you sold to Akamai, was it just you and the other guy, or did you build it no, back up? No. So we we brought in, you know, we brought in. I think the total fresh powder was probably in the neighborhood of seven hundred grand or something like this. Okay. Something like that, because we paid off some of the note stuff from the old stuff, right? So the the new powder was probably seven or eight hundred grand. I can't remember what it was, but something around there. And yeah, I hired a team back to get, you know, put, you know, got a team together. Right. And this the team we put together this go around was freaking awesome. Insanely awesome team. Best team I've ever worked with. And what year are we talking about then? This is 05 to 07. Okay. So this is right around the time that we first met Marastro. Yeah. Okay. Uh, hanging out. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we had Cause some- I, yeah. Cause I remember, I think when we first met, it was just you and that one guy who's now at Google yeah. And everything else has kind of took off like a rocket ship not too long after that, I guess. That's right. I mean, okay. so in those two years, we went, you know, we just kept hustling, kept hustling. You know, this wasn't a natural, it wasn't, you know, they talk about product market fit. I mean, we did all right, but we didn't kill it. You know what I mean? Sure. I mean, by any stretch, we were just arm wrestling customers down, just taking them out as we could. <laughs> you know? Are, are right. you interested in building that kind of company again, or are you more interested in being a, an investor? I mean, no, I, I, I'm naturally an entrepreneur and sort of just investing for investment's sake is not interesting to me. Right. So what, so what are you doing at the moment then? Whoa, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up. You jump, jump <laughs> at the gun there, Justin. We'll, we'll get to that. We got the whole... We're gonna, I'm we, really curious. Well, that's fine. You just hold on a second. Okay, part three is, is uh, 
Travis as angel investor. Part two, we need to finish up the story with uh, Red Swoosh and how we sold Akamai. Yeah. Some more good stuff here. Okay, so... So put together this amazing team by the end of, by the, by early 06, we, we, we had a team that was really cranking and doing some really good work. Um, and again, you know, we're bringing in customers, but we're also obviously increasing our burn by bringing a team together. Um, by May 06, I don't know if you, you know, engineers sit around the lunch table quite often and they talk about, man, you can code from anywhere, you know, Let's let's do a you know the name of the company is Red Swoosh. Let's do a swoosh compound you know on this exotic island and we can code from there and we'll code from the beach and it will be awesome and we'll have jet skis and hot chicks and whatever. <laughs> all right. And uh, I mean I don't know we would talk about that shit all the time. And our lease came up on our place in the Bay Area because I'd moved in 2005. I moved from LA to to San Francisco and. Our lease came up, and you know, one day I'm just like, "Why don't we? Why don't we do it? Right? Let's do a swoosh compound, baby." Enough talking about it, yeah. Let's. Yeah, so so we all went to Mel's Diner in San Francisco. Everybody threw in their location. Three days later, all of us were on a plane to Bangkok. <laughs> right now, how'd you happen to pick Bangkok? Uh, well, they're just you know the islands and beaches of Thailand are freaking off the hook. Right. Okay. I've never been. I never really traveled at all. But uh, but a couple of my guys had you know been coding from the road for a year plus. Right. So how many people did you get to agree to go to Bangkok? Uh, I think we had six total. That's impressive to, to get six people to to uproot and change their life that much. Yeah, we're all young, crazy guys. Right. I was I was hiring people like myself. Right. So. So you, so, so you just, you chose it, what, because it was supposed to be nice beaches and what, and dollars would go, go a long way yeah, there? Basically, the idea was we need to provably be more productive while we're gone. Right. And we need to spend less than we would in the U.S. Okay. So we have to be more productive and better financially on the cost side. Okay. And if we could do that, we say, all right, then it's worth it. And I held, you know, I, I held the team to that and made it a very serious commitment on our part. Right. Was it just a vacation? So how long did you go for? Two months. Okay. Was that enough to get anything done? Yeah. We rewrote, we rewrote our code base uh, on the server side. Um, rebranded. I was working on rebranding the site and sort of taking us from brochureware to sort of uh, software as a service, self-service uh, tool set for webmasters, right? Okay. It's the same concept. It's content delivery peer-to-peer, but make it so people can try us out on the fly, right? Right. Um, and create a conversion funnel and all that good stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, we worked our asses off out there. I mean, yes, you know, during lunch we could, uh, you know, go take a swim. There's no doubt about it. But, uh, but we were working our butts off. Six did, days a week, basically. Did it, but did it turn out? Was it as fun as you had uh, expected? I mean, was it nice no, living on the beach? Or it was. It's a life. It was a life experience doing okay. what we did. Um, we, you know, with the constraints that we put in place, right, on monetary and productivity, um, and going. We didn't know where we were going to end up. We had to find this beach, and right? So it had to be ultra cheap, ultra ultra cheap, but also had to have power and internet and be really remote because that's kind of what we were into. Would you, would you rent like a big house or something or how, or so you could work yeah. together? How did it work? Yeah, yeah, that's what we did. How did the conversation go with your investors and note holders when uh, you said, hey, we're, we're all going to go to Bangkok? 
some 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 were more about it than others (laughs) interesting (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's the best way to put it but that's why i felt like i had to really provably show that we were killing it right right because dude my ass is on the line we better come out of that fucking glowing right sure so did now when you came back after two months, I mean, why did you come back only after two months? Did you get everything done you wanted to, or did you have business deals that you needed to get done, or what was the reason? Seemed, it just seemed like the right amount of time. Okay, so it wasn't like you're planning. It wasn't like you're planning to go there for a couple of years, and no. kind of you came back early. You just said this no. was just like a really long vacation, work work vacation or something. Yeah, I wouldn't call it work vacation. We call it offshoring ourselves. Okay, <laughs> I'm showing yourself. Okay, so you came back to the Bay Area, and okay, so what happened? How, how so did things we relaunched, end up? We relaunched the company. This is middle of 2006. We relaunched the company, self-service, uh, you know, conversion funnel. We're starting to get 100 developers signing up for this every, you know, every day. Um, it's starting to get, you know, get used by a bunch of people around the net for people who need to distribute lots of files. Um, Akamai comes to us, gets interested sort of middle, you know, when I get back, middle of 2006, middle to sort of fall of 2006, they're interested. I keep telling them no, because I don't understand how the hell we're going to work together. And uh, they keep coming back for more. And, uh, you know, we start negotiating in earnest sort of by January of 2007 and by April 2007, essentially two years after I got the Cuban investment. Oh, we, we had other things happen. We, we were starting to run out of money. We did an EchoStar deal where we got distributed in all the set-top boxes. You know, that was real revenue, uh, sort of like a million-dollar-a-year type deal. Right. Um, you know, so stuff was starting to happen. By April 2007, Akamai bought us. Right. And, no, when they bought you, well, I, one thing I'd be curious about, how did the negotiation go? I think you had mentioned in a couple of our previous conversations about how – how those went. I mean, is there anything you can talk about? With yeah, that? no, I mean, it basically, we didn't have one. Well, I think probably one of the most important points of the whole negotiation is that swoosh red swoosh did not have other bidders. Right. Which so, always makes it difficult. It freaking makes it really difficult. Um, we're starting, it's, it's hard. It's hard to create an efficient market when you have one. There's no doubt about it. It's no doubt about it. So, you know, we're getting traction. We've got some revenues coming in. It's looking good. But at the same time, I've, you know, I've seen that before. Remember in 2001, I had Disney as a customer, right? Right. So, so it really was, you know, do I double down here and keep going? Um, you know, get investment or something. Well, I guess we'd already sort of, you know, we were, we were doing fine. We had enough money in the bank because EchoStar put some money in. Uh, it was a note, but I was, I was a big fan of the convertible note. <laughs> I guess it kept happening. Um, right. But, uh, you know, some debt essentially from EchoStar as we did that big revenue deal. EchoStar, by the way, is Dish TV. Okay. And so we, um, we, I basically had to make sort of, I had to have the, what do they call it? The come to Jesus. I had to come to Jesus with myself, which is like, <laughs> If I double down here and do it for three more years, remember, I didn't, I I don't think I highlighted this. I did four years at swoosh without any salary. Wow. Okay. So if I do this for three more years and this does not work out, I will end up at the funny farm. Sure. And when I, when I had that come to Jesus, then it became very clear that I had to sell this. 
but then I have to sell it without getting my, without getting worked. Right. Yeah. You have to, you have to get that four years back as it were. Yeah. I mean, I have to, well, not just that I, I, I want to get really paid. I'm not, you know, we're seeing enough traction that I'm not going to do this if I'm bending over. Right. Right. So, so it doesn't really matter that, that, that it's bidding because it's a, it's, it was really just about you and what was acceptable to you. So yeah, it, it but, didn't really matter. But, the, but the, the, the one bidder, which is Akamai, you know, they feel like they can take it to us. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, because Justin, it's not all about what one party thinks; it's what the other party thinks, right? Yeah. So if Akamai can be like, "Well, that's fine, Travis. You may think you're worth, you know, this huge amount of sum, but we're telling you, you're not worth that, and we'll pay you this this amount that we think is more than fair, and we really think you should take it." And you know, kind of be pretty strongly convincing in that way, right? I mean, it's but, but they, so the best way to tell an East Coast high tech firm that you know that I'm not, you know, that I need to have certain parameters is not to just say, this is the parameters I need, but simply to just say no multiple times. Okay. And then they come back with a new offer. Yeah. Or hopefully, you know, let's get back to the table and see if we can work it out again. Right. It was hard, dude. It was hard for both parties. So how many times did you go go back to the table? Two or three times where it was like impasse, you know, Hmm. and that was scary, right? It was scary for me. Sure. I mean, because I guess at the very least, you figured you're going to have a payout and you're going to make, you know, a big return, especially for someone who's what you're how old were you at the time in your mid late 20s? No, I was like 29 or 30, something like that. Yeah. But I'm so that so you're either way, you were still going to get real money. Maybe you weren't going to get as much money as you wanted to. So there's a part of your psyche that's saying, you know, all right, Travis, look, you know, maybe maybe this in Google, but this is a big payoff. Why not just take it? it, But it comes down to respect at some level. Right. Okay. And you, you know, this is an emotional thing and it's like the numbers are the numbers, but are you respecting what it is that we have created here? Right. Right. That's really, that's when you really get into it. That's where you end up. So you, you did the deal and what was it said that it's public? That's was 19 million. Is that right? 19 million was what they paid for the company. There was an additional four or five and incentives. So all in, you know, 23, 24. Yeah, I'd say that's a pretty nice payoff, especially considering you were the primary stakeholder, stakeholder owner at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, no, one thing you told me in the past, which was interesting, was that when you when you were acquired, that you kind of put up a moat around your team and really protected your yeah. guys from the Akamai proper because you felt that if you didn't, your team and your technology would be diluted and it would just be miserable, right? Can you talk a little about that? Um, yeah, so it was, it started to become pretty clear that, you know, I never worked at a big company. It was becoming really clear what it meant to work at a big company and what it meant to be the hottest project going on at a big company. Right. Right. At a, at a, a techie, geeky, very talented, technically big company. Right. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants a piece. Everybody wants to be in on the big meetings. Everybody wants to help on the strategy. Everybody wants to help us sell. Everybody wants in. And, but everybody's got, you know, 99% of those people have really fucking stupid ideas. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, no offense to any of those people, but there, there were a few folks at Akamai who were freaking 
on the idea side, tech side, et cetera, were amazing. But, you know, look, they hadn't lived and breathed this like I had for seven years. Right. And that happens a lot with smart people, right? They sit down, they look at something, they think about it for 15 minutes, and they think they have all these great ideas. And you're like, and dude, I've been thinking about this day and night. I mean, your, your 15 yeah. minutes of great ideas just can't compare to my four years of great ideas. Well, it's, it's also- I don't want to piss them off either, but I mean, the bottom line is that the bottom line is that big companies need to learn how to do, in, you know, how to do acquisitions of tech companies much, much better than they do today. Um, some companies have it down, no doubt, but there's a lot, there's a lot of science and art there that needs to be sort of learned up and distributed across big companies. So they do these things, right? Well, who does it right? Well, good. I mean, Google certainly in the press do it right. And do they, I mean, they bought dodgeball and they pretty much killed it. Right. And dodgeball, they bought, blogger and it pretty much blogger and and nowhere right yeah Whoa. i mean i don't think i mean the guys who dodgeball which then became foursquare the guys left and started foursquare i mean they thought it was a nightmare they couldn't get resources they couldn't get things where's done Ar- where's aardvark yeah i mean i well, don't so, know so I, hold on a second what if they hadn't bought them would they be a hugely successful company today i mean i often think that the time that they buy these companies is like the peak of the curve and those ah, companies in their own right may not be going your speculation. You, you never know, right? I mean, no, no, but here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. Some acquisitions do well, and a hell of a lot of them don't, right? And, and you know, I find it very hard to understand how a big company can justify. Let's, let's take a look at Aardvark, for instance. I don't know, was that $30 million, $50 million for basically a talent acquisition? Dude, if I put up, wait, what a, was Aardvark? That was that, that was that, that the was analytics. A, that was no, it was an answer service, right? Oh, right, like uh, Mechanical Turk or something, or Yahoo no, Answers. No, it was just answers, but sort of Mechanical Turk style, but not really. It was more social. It was it was answers, but done socially, okay. and and the product by most people's counts was not very good, um, including my own. I would say it was a horrible product experience from, from my perspective. Right. And, and they spend 30, 40, 50 million dollars. I can't remember the exact number for what a talent acquisition. I don't get it because you just made these guys rich. They're not going to stick around. They're going to be thinking about doing the next thing. And dude, if I put up a job post that said your salary is a million dollars a year, trust me, I'm going to get the most badass ballers out there for sure. Right. And they'll kill it. So I don't really get the, the aqua hire thing when it's... That getting- is true. That is a good point because, I mean, you know, you could, you could get a team of like four guys, pay them a million bucks a year and you'd have an amazing product. Yeah, and set it up with like real incentives to like succeed. Yeah. You know, so I don't get the aqua hire thing. That said, like, you know, if one of my companies that I've invested in or a company that I do in the future, if I, if it becomes a pure aqua hire, like they're not using the product or anything to do, you know, I mean, maybe I'm not going to complain in that situation, but I just say from a overall perspective, I don't really get it. How did you deal with, with now working for Akamai when you'd been used to just working on your own? Yeah. On on a personal level. At some levels I did really well. And at some, some levels I did really shitty. Um, so, you know, what Jason was alluding to was like, you know, I put a moat around the team essentially to, to do a meeting with our team, which was in San Francisco, you had to, you had to say what the meeting, you know, you basically had to say what the meeting was about, you know, have an agenda, 
right? And you had to send it to me 48 hours in advance. And I had to approve the agenda. And then you could have a meeting in our office. Right. And very quickly, <laughs> meetings just didn't happen at my office. Right. How did the product go once it was purchased by Akamai? Where is it today? Where's Red Swoosh? And yeah, it- so they're distributing it pretty broadly. I think Adobe's using it. I mean, basically, before I left, we'd done you know deals with like Adobe, HP. We were doing some stuff. Oh, actually, I need to be careful. I don't know what's public here and what's not. Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm gonna hold off on saying all the places, but but. But essentially, we did a bunch of deals with big companies to utilize this technology. And as far as I can tell, though, I'm not in the middle of it. And it's been a couple of years since I had or a year and a half since I've been there or a little bit longer than that. Maybe almost, you know, it's getting up to two years. Not there yet, but almost um, the, uh, you know, um, yeah, I mean, it's being used, which is good. It's being used. It didn't sink to oblivion like so yeah. many of the other applications. No, it didn't. Could it be used more? Would I like to see it being even bigger and badder? Of course. But at some point, it's not. At some point, this isn't my game anymore, right? Right. So I wanted to get them in a good place, make sure the rest of the team understood the tech and knew how to use it from a business perspective. And it was time for me to move on. And part of that was, you know, look, I'm an innovator, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, you know, part of it was, I just felt like I was too attached to it to really, to sort of help it go to the next operational phase in the company. But, you know, really at the end of the day, it was just, it was the right move at the right time. So Jason, I'm hoping we can move on to, uh, either the angel stuff or the, what, what Travis is doing now. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, they're one and the same. I just, um, I wanted to get through those first two stories. I thought, the Scour stories is really interesting. I thought people would like to hear that. I'm sure some of our listeners might remember Scour from back in the day. Red Swoosh, of course, is a great story. I wanted to make sure that Travis could get through that. And Guys, uh, nobody's heard the story in this form that I've told it like this publicly. That's awesome. I've heard it. I've heard variations versions from you privately, but uh, yeah, this is cool. So I, hopefully, our listeners will enjoy it. You are bringing the thunder with this podcast, <laughs> at least as it relates to me. <laughs> It was an awesome rendition as well, by the way. Oh, fair <laughs> that is great. So, okay. So you left and how long was it after you left Akamai that you decided that you wanted to get into angel investing and that you started to do something about it? And how that whole transition happened too? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I didn't know. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I just knew, knew I wanted to get involved with companies that were doing cool stuff. And I wasn't sure what that involvement would ultimately look like. Okay. Um, and so... Um, let's see, I'm just looking at my calendar. We're cool. Um, so, so I wasn't sure how that involvement was going to look, but I just started reaching out. Well, there are a couple things that happened. One was the guys that I had hired at, at Red Swoosh had also left Akamai and they started a company called Expensify. Right. So I, I became an advisor very quickly there, helped them get investment and became an investor as well. Right. Okay. Right. Um, there was that. I reached out to a company at the time it was called Dolores Labs is now called Crowdflower because I had ideas about a company I wanted to start in that general sort of mechanical Turk space. Right. Um, the idea was essentially in like high value Q and a on top of mechanical Turk labor force. Right. Right. And so then I reached out to a guy named Lucas Bewald, who is the CEO founder of, 
of Crowdflower. And, you know, it was six months before, you know, I was working with him for six months before he went and got funding. Right. Right. He's an amazing guy. And he's just well connected amongst the entrepreneur and tech community in the Bay Area. He's just an amazing dude, an amazing young CEO founder. And then, um, and then there was a company called Cario. One of my co-founders from Scour had started. I'd always believed in it. It was the right time, right place. And I put a big chunk down there. I put a big chunk into DeviantArt, uh, which is a, a community of artists and people who love art. Essentially 20 million users uh, a month. And, you know, they're killing it. Uh, you know, a couple billion pages a month. They're killing it. And then things just started snowballing. I just, you know, people, you know, the, I just invested in very quality people and they would just send quality people my way. And pretty soon I just got a name for myself in being involved an investor that actually really brings value that gets involved, not because I want to be involved, but because the entrepreneurs want me to be involved on certain projects and certain things. You know, has it been long enough to get any kind of return or, or are you still kind of seeing where, where all your investments are going? No, I mean, I have monster paper returns right now, like awesome, but there haven't been exits. So next rounds happen, you know, the company's worth five, 10 X what it was before in the last round. Um, but, uh, but no, no exits as of yet. And it's, it's, uh, we'll, we'll see when that happens. I basically made 12 investments. You know, some of the folks already talked about, you've got Blippy, you've got Formspring, uh, you've got, um, you know, there's a whole, whole bunch of really interesting companies, um, that I'm involved in. Yeah, Unvarnished is one of them. If you guys know about that, that's very controversial. Uh, one of the ones I'm most involved in is uh, a company called UberCab, which I essentially incubated with a guy named Garrett Camp, who's the CEO founder of StumbleUpon. His wow. idea, he's the brainchild, and then he's CEO of StumbleUpon. He's like, we need to get this off the ground. So I, I sort of took the reins, uh, brought in the team, and you know, uh, you know, basically you know, major shareholder and. Uh, and on the board now, and and we we we're uh, we're doing some good stuff. So how, how involved do you get day to day on on your investments, or does it does it, it uh, vary? It, it depends as I'm needed, right? So it can be like twenty up to twenty hours a week. I've seen. I mean, I've seen thirty hours a week, right? But uh, you know, different companies spike in their needs for my time at different times, and so I'll have three or four or five, usually three to four guys going at once hard, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Now, do you have like a sort of a, a game plan where you're only willing to invest a certain amount? Because I, I read this article or post by, uh, was it Tim Ferriss? And he said, he, he had some interesting things to say about angel investing. And um, one of it was that he would only invest a certain amount per startups, which he said he then went to break that rule almost immediately. Do you have rules like that for yourselves? For yourself? Well, I mean, about investing and how early they are, how many founders there are, or how much you invest or whatever? Uh, I look at it deal by deal basis. I mean, everybody has a budget, right? Okay. Um, but I look at it a deal by deal basis. I think if you constrain yourself to say, this is the size deal I do, then you're going to, you're, you're going to be suboptimal in your investment because some, some deals you want to put more down than the other. It's maybe less risky or there's bigger upside. Um, you know, some, you know, you just got to take them as they come. So I, my criteria is 
the founder that I'm sitting across the table from is somebody that I can imagine, you know, at some level, I could be a, he could be a co-founder of mine. That's number one. Number two is the idea is interesting. Like it, it's just interesting. Like you just want to instantly ask questions and like, it's kind of phenomenal, maybe controversial, you know, it's just grabs you. Right. And more specifically grabs me. Um, and then three is I look for a good deal. I look for a good freaking deal, you know? And so I, you'd, it's, it's more than just investing for money. It's also a little bit of a lifestyle choice in who you invest in then. Yeah. I mean, because the co-founder piece is like, I'm going to work with these guys. Right. right. So I want to work with them. They want to work with me. We connect in that way. Let's, let's rock it. Let's do it. Sometimes I just get involved in these companies before it's investment time. And I'll just provide my services free of charge just because. And then right. when it's time, then when it's time to, to do the investment and all this stuff, then we set up, hey, dude, you've been involved. We'll throw some advisory shares down and then we'll do the, we'll, we'll do the investment as well. Hey, by the way, can you help us get investment? And then I'll send them to my, you know, my, uh, my, my contacts and, and, and friends in the angel community. And we I'm get hoping- it done. I'm hoping you don't get a thousand emails after this show <laughs> from uh, people who are looking to pitch you. <laughs> no, of course. But, you know, the, the best approach for those guys looking to pitch me is, is uh, yeah, I don't know. The <laughs> best <laughs> approach for those guys is probably to um, you know, go to my AngelList profile and look at the people who influenced me. Um, because, you know, in a lot of ways, I trust those folks to send me really awesome people. What, what are your thoughts on the uh, solo entrepreneur? I mean, is, is that something you shy away from or do you, or do you think that's just a case by case thing? Uh, being like many times you go into a company with a co-founder, one of those guys is going to end up being the solo entrepreneur. That happens a lot. Right. Right. So that's number one. So make sure you cover yourself on the vesting side. Like we talked about earlier. Second is being a solo entrepreneur you, you know, especially if it's from the start, being a solo entrepreneur is freaking hard. It's a real lonely job, my friend. Um, but it can be insanely rewarding. You don't have to sell for very much to make real dollars, right? Um, so it's something to keep in mind. You're one of the few solo entrepreneurs that I've heard about, actually. No, um, who's, who's kind of taken it, taken it to that level. But I mean, I'm sure that there are, there's many yeah. others. I mean, well, let's, let's talk about it, right? Like, uh, uh, what's his name? Paul Allen and Bill Gates. Right. I don't so, know how quickly, but you know, eventually Paul wasn't part of the deal. So Bill, so Bill Gates is considered a solo entrepreneur. No, yeah. not really. It's just that, you know, one person ends up sort of emerging as the leader oftentimes, yeah. I guess. Right. Well, not just the leader, but like the other guys out right now, it depends when that happens. That's a big part of it. Right. But, but yeah, I, I, I was pretty much solo for swoosh. I mean, I started out with a co-founder, but that didn't last very long. So I was pretty much solo found, you know, as far as approach and how I had to roll and the, the challenges and the whole thing, I was a solo, I was solo for swoosh. And, and you're right. It doesn't happen very often, you know, or, or, you know, the split up between founders can happen later, but there's a number of, number of situations where founders get split up or one guy goes. I mean, that happens all the time. 
Right. Now, one thing I, I think is interesting in the whole in the in the evolution of the angel investing world is this sort of rolling investment. And there's been some talk on Hacker News about the various articles about how, you know, up until recently, you go through rounds of investment. So a lot of angels or VCs would band together and do a round, um, maybe with with a lead or something. But it's starting to change to where it's not that way anymore. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? And and, and also, how does that how does that relate to you? wanting to band together with other angels or do you care yeah rolling investment i don't get that i mean i haven't seen the articles that you're seeing i I haven't seen that but dude rolling investment sucks don't do it why is why is why is that i I think it was that paul graham initially brought up the the topic and there have been a few sort of wow so i'm going response sucks for the investor or sucks for the uh the the company. So I'm going, I'm going head up with Paul now. I love it. Um, I have not read his article. I probably should, but my bottom, you know, where I, what I feel about any kind of situation where you're constantly raising money or constantly having to pull money in instead of doing a, a sort of an event, a fundraising that everybody falls into, um, is that it sucks for the entrepreneur to always be fundraising. It sucks for the sort of deal dynamics and momentum are just sucked out of a deal when you don't have an event where you get it all done mm-hmm. and you're just stuck doing lots of raises. Now, do you maybe do smaller rounds and be slimmer and leaner so that you're not giving up as much of the company? I'm totally down for that, but I don't, maybe, maybe I need to know more about what you mean by a rolling round, but that's sort of my perspective just hearing that term. Well, one of those talking, I can't remember the, the guy, he's like one of the more well, uh, widely read uh, VCs, it's like the um, Union Square Partners, or one of those guys, I can't remember his name, but uh, he's, he was talking about how, you know, they, there needs to be a lead, like, Paul Graham had talked about that there doesn't need to be a lead anymore, and he's claiming there does need to be a lead investor that kind of corrals everybody. Oh, I see. Yeah, so if you want to talk about it, whether there needs to be a lead, that's that's a whole other ball game. Um, a lead can certainly be nice for a round. Um, it can certainly be nice. Uh, for one, it sort of helps. It can help a deal coalesce around a, a particular individual who's leading it, and they depend on him to do the diligence and, and negotiate the terms, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that person is, you know, very well incented to make sure that company is doing what it's supposed to be doing and, and sort of watching out for the other investors. Right. Uh, on the other hand, I've seen a number of deals where there aren't leads and it, I've seen them work out fine. Right. And right. getting lots of fans in an age around can be very useful. The only thing that is required when you do that is you need to have an entrepreneur that knows how to manage that situation. Um, appropriately, and not everybody has the skills to do that. Right. You know, here I just found the quote from uh, Paul Graham about the rolling um, funding, and he says, "The future of funding is no fixed amount, no fixed closing date, no lead. In other words, the future of financing is continuous, not discrete." I so, think that is botarded. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Okay. Um, okay. So when you when you find an investment that you you're interested in, I mean, do you normally try and get sort of your boys together? Like you you have like you know a handful of guys you like to invest with, and you kind of hit them up and say, "Hey, let's do this together." Or how how does it usually happen? What happens is I'll be working with a company. They get to a point where I mean, here's the thing: all these all these entrepreneurs always want money. 
They're like, when are we going to get funding? When are we going to get funding? When are we going to get funding? I'm like, dude, you suck right now. (laughs) You're not, you're never going to get funding if you keep sucking the way you suck right now. And so I'm like, we have to get you to a point where funding is a possible and B, the right thing to do. And so let's get you in shape. And when you're in shape, we'll go get you your money, okay? And stop being such a pussy and start getting to work and get shit done. And it will take care of itself. What's the shape that they need to be in? What, what, what shape do they need to get in before they're going to get funding? I mean, it depends. It's a, it's a company by company thing. But the bottom line is like, you could say it's... It's like uh, you, you basically want to put out funding as long as humanly possible. Is it like a scenario where they need to show that they've got customers, they need to, to have traction, they, they, they need to prove that, they're go, that the numbers are going up? Is it that type of scenario? Or is well, it look, so- yeah, if you, if, I mean, if you get that part, I mean, then it's a no right? Then, it's, then, the, then the investment happens on your terms. Um, they need product but, market fit is really the the term. Yeah, now, yeah. Right? I mean, if you can come and show product market fit and some level of traction and some growth, dude, you're going to kill it in your funding. It will be simple. Now, I've got because essentially, gotten, you essentially what you've done is you've outlined a function where you put X dollars in for customer acquisition and you get X dollars out in return, and so you just need to multiply it. And that's the that's the the function I mean, that uh, VCs want to see. Right? That's the ideal, but honestly, like most companies can't get there before a seed round, right? So, right. so the question is, how much before that can you actually go and get a round? And it depends on the opportunity. It depends how awesome the entrepreneur is. It depends on what space that person is and if the other investors have a bad taste about that space. Is it crowded? You know, the whole thing. And um, it's about, you know, and, and sort of when you look inward when you're that entrepreneur, it's about... Like, are, is the company at some point being hurt by not getting funding? Because a lot of times you get funding, but actually you're just going to keep doing the same shit you are now. You just have de-risked yourself, right? Right. But at some point, funding actually, you know, you've gotten to a certain level where funding changes, the, changes what you do. But take for example, take for example, Jason, who is working on App Ignite as a, as a side project to his consultancy. Now, funding wouldn't just change things for him; it would mean that he could work on it, you know, one hundred percent of the time. And he's he's can only do that through funding because obviously he's got a wife and kids. So, wh- wh- how would that relate to that kind of scenario? Well, I would basically ask: Is it is his site public right now? Is App Ignite public and available? Not yet. No. Okay. So. In this marketplace, it's going to be difficult for Jason to get funding without something being shown. Like, yeah, see, I would, I would never try and raise funding until I had at least, a, at very least, a private, if not a public beta. Yeah, I wouldn't even try. Situations, there are situations where it's a sufficiently complex problem or software, you know, or challenge to get up and running. And it's a sufficiently awesome upside of getting it right that you can get funding before you, you know, before it's ready. But you have to be able to communicate that awesomeness very, very succinctly and very awesomely. And the recipients of that message have to be on board. Like they have to like. 
they have to be very receptive to that message. And there is some art and there is some like, you don't know what's going to happen when you tell them. They may go nuts or they may poo-poo it. There's some uncertainty in that. Um, and that's why you try to push it out as far as you can and get as far along as you can to the point where you're like, look, man, we're, you know, we push this out as far as we can and it's time. It's just time to freaking start building this thing, you know? Right. Now, how, when you do a an angel round, I mean, what is usually the range of 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 equity that the angels or angels plural take in the first round or the angel round? Um, it depends, but yeah, that depends. It's not the same as the VC world, where like we take twenty percent no matter what, right? Right? Or we take thirty percent no matter what. It's it depends on the stage of your company, how much you're raising. I can talk about the pre-money valuations that are floating around, right? Right. So an awesome idea is going to end up between three and five right now. Probably three and four is probably a more, is probably more realistic. If, you know, that's when it's awesome. That's when it's like insane momentum and you're killing it. The investors are loving it, right? Okay. Then there's, um, then there's ones that are a little, you know, they got some hair on there, you know, there's some un, you know, lack of clarity or it's a really, really green early situation and or CEO, then you're going to end up in sort of the two to three range for the pre-money. And you have to figure out, you know, it, there's a bunch of ways to sort of say, well, how much money do we need to bring in? You better know what you're going to do with that money, of course, you know. Right. Interesting. So how many deals do you see or review, say, in a week or a month? Is this something you're looking at like two or three a day or do you get just a few a week? How many? How much of this yeah, are you seeing? So, so, I mean, the, the high level is that I'm not a boil the ocean kind of guy, right? Some, some investors look at it and they're like, I want to see every freaking deal imaginable. Um, right. But what happens is because I'm because of the way I approach things and how much the entrepreneurs like working with me and how much value the investors see me, see me bringing to the companies that I work with, I get deal flow from entrepreneurs that I've invested in and, and investors that I've invested with. And I usually just get introduced to really awesome people all the time. And they, they like heart, like if I don't already know the entrepreneur and I'm not already working with them, which is my preferred way of doing it. Uh, if it's like, Oh, we're doing a round right now. And I, what happens is a lot of times the, the venture guy will just carve out a slot for me on that deal. They'll just say right. it's yours for the taking. Uh, that's what happened with form spring. Right. And that was a killer deal. Those guys went from zero to 50 million users in three months. Right. And uh, they just carved out a space for me because they wanted me in. And guess what? I'm spending a ton of time with Formspring. How many users did they have when you invested? 50 million. Oh, okay, so, so basically they, they'd gone from the zero to the 50 million and then you made your investment. Yeah, and it was crazy. It's crazy okay. times. Okay. And the but valuation was in very, very appropriate. Or let's say, remember I said one of those things is it's got to be a good deal. It was yeah. a good deal. Now, you wouldn't invest with them if they had zero users. The exact same company. Uh, I don't know, but that, that's an interesting question. That's a freaking interesting question. If you'd met them three months earlier and they were at the point where they just put everything together. No, 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 I definitely wouldn't have. And the main reason is because like they're in the Q and a space. 
right? Social Q and A. And you're like, maybe, maybe that will be awesome, but maybe not, you know, and right. you don't, it's so binary. Like, like they didn't even mean to do what they did. It was just like put up this thing and then it just started killing it. How do you go from zero to 50 million users in three months? How does that happen? Those are right. users that actually go to their site. We're not talking about a widget here. We're talking about people that are going to their site. Um, how do you freaking do that? Like that's magic. That's bottled lightning, right? <laughs> and anybody who pitches that up front, like I'm at zero users, but I'm telling you this is bottled lightning. You're like, <laughs> yeah, 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 right. I heard you that. You don't believe them. Yeah, exactly. Everyone says that. <laughs> and in that space, it's a very crowded space. And it's like, you know, maybe, right? You're not, you know, I don't know, you know, so... So, um, you know, in that specific situation, I'd say probably no, I would, I would help those guys out cause I like these guys and I'd be there front line in the trenches with them when it started taking off and I'm like, boom, I'm in, let's go. Right? <laughs> so do you, do you have a preference for sort of these consumer apps where they're just trying to build up a massive user base and get a few rounds of funding and then do something big in that way? Or do you also like sort of the business, uh, or the approach where they're building up a revenue stream slowly but surely where they're actually profitable. I mean, do you well, like, care? What do you Spring think? is a very rare example. Formspring is one where, dude, they're going to, I believe they're going to have an insane revenue stream and it's going to be big bang because they just got such a huge audience, right? It's, okay. it's, but I, but I know what that, I, I see what that business model is going to be and it totally makes sense and I'm in, right? Right. Um, but if somebody comes and they're like, we don't have any users, but we have this awesome thing. It's bottle lightning, I swear. And it's a crowded space. But I'm telling you, the business model is going to be amazing. You're like, okay, whatever, dude. So I guess the, the bottom, the, the sort of quick answer to your question is I care about the business side. Okay. But, J- but Jason's asking if, if someone is basically trying to bootstrap and they're a company and they maybe have 50 paying customers kind of thing. Yeah. Right. So is, is that interesting in any way? It depends what it is and it depends how they get those customers. And it, it depends on whether they're going from 50 this week to 60 next week. Okay. Right. It's the rate of growth. But if they're hustling, if they're hustling and they're, and I can, I, you can just know, you know, when somebody's hustling, if they're hustling, they're killing it. And it's like, holy shit, these guys are like, they're, they're bringing it. Right. And week over week, there's more customers than the week before, and they're not messing around, and they're they're hunting. Then I'm I'm in, and you know what you know. Key example of that is the Flowtown guys. So you want a scrapper like you were, basically? Well, let's. There's all kinds of different entrepreneurs. I have no issue with somebody who hustles and gets it done. <laughs> well, what's Flowtown? Flowtown is is basically. It's bringing ROI to social media efforts um, of, of, for, for the small business. So real, tangible ROI based on social data and analyzing social interactions um, that these companies have. I know that's not a very clean, crisp sort of description, but it's basically like a bunch of small businesses want to get more people in the, in the shop. They want to get the right products up. Show, you know, the right product shown to the right customer. They want return visitation and they want, they want those, uh, those customers to be telling their friends, right? I mean, just basic mom and pop shop. That's what they need, right? It's the basics. And so 
Um, and so using social data and social interactions to improve each of those areas and provably improve each of those areas brings huge value to the small business. And, and that's essentially what they're going after. No, so why did the Flowtown guys, or how did they impress you? Week over week, they had more customers than they did before. Right. What about a play like um, like Zynga, where it's, it specifically starts off on a platform of fa- like Facebook? Would you ever consider oh, that? Thing, yeah, wait, one more thing on Flowtown, right? Yeah. The Flowtown guys, if you just meet them, a guy named Dan Martell and Ethan Block, if you just meet them, they will blow you away. <laughs> they are amazing dudes. In what way? They're just smart, or they're funny, or they think fast? Smart. Or they just they're smart, crappy? they're funny, they think fast, and they are straight-up hustlers. It's East Coast hustle, West Coast tech. Right. <laughs> it's crazy. You never see that. Right, so that's the best, that's the best combination, right? Well, it's, a, it's an awesome combination. I can't say it's the best. It's <laughs> an awesome combination. I've seen all combinations out there. That's an awesome one. So there's no formula. It's just you know it when you see it. That's right. Right, yeah. It's your gut feel, really. So it's, it's almost like as if you're, uh, you know, using the music analogy, it's almost like you're an A&R guy going around looking at bands play. And if there's a band that really gets you, then you go for it. Yeah, I think that's 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 kind of like what it is. And what I would say is, I get in there. I get. I'm the, I'm an A and guy that's not a wanker dude like a lot of A and R guys. <laughs> but I'm an A and R guy that gets in there and like you know jams with them. Right, my house. Entrepreneurs have named my house the Jam Pad. Right, <laughs> because they come all day long. Entrepreneurs stream into my house and we jam on ideas and and entrepreneurial endeavors and companies solving problems, killing it, the whole nine. So do all of these entrepreneurs have sort of like bigger-than-life personalities that are they're very aggressive and uh, or, or in very, uh, very sort of confident? Or do you, are you investing guys who are kind of like the low-key tech guys that they, they may personally, you may talk to them and think, oh, I'm not seeing anything special here, but they're super bright. I mean, is there anything it's in that both. area? It's all over the map. Okay. Because I would imagine that it's like this. It's like this, Jason, right? Like you can go to an Italian restaurant and go, oh, my God, the pasta was amazing. Holy cow. That was amazing pasta. And then you can go to um, then you can go to a, a sushi restaurant and be like, what the hell? That was the best sushi I ever had in my life. And so there are different personalities out there different kinds of people that can kill it in the tech space. And it doesn't have to be just that one kind. This is the kind of, I only eat sushi every night, you know? Do you, do you think that, do you think that a lot of investors fall into sort of cargo cult mentality where they've, they've seen a couple of, or a handful of successes that are all of a certain mold. And so they just keep looking for that, even though that's not really what the secret sauce is. It's like the same thing. Like you see movies come, movies come out based on very superficial things. It's not because really what's important is a great entertaining story. Here's what happens. Not all investors, but a hell of a lot of them. They get into a mode where it's easy not to think. Right. They so they're just, they're just like everybody else. They're looking for a way not to have to make a decision, and they can just sort of feel good no, that they're on either, either that. I mean, I, again, there are a lot of great investors out there. I try to work with those guys, right? 
Um, but, uh, you know, the ones that entrepreneurs, you know, sort of whine about or get upset about or just complain about the most are the ones, and, and a lot of them fall into this trap. They just get into a mode where they just don't, th- they just stop thinking. They, they just don't feel like they need to think anymore. And what, does that, I mean, what does that mean exactly? I mean, how, how can you tell an investor is not thinking? Is I mean, he just repeating the same mantras that everyone else is repeating or, or what? I mean, it's that it's pattern matching. It's like thinking they know everything, not rethinking the lessons that they learned and, and saying there are new lessons to learn, not challenging themselves to step up and do something different. Um, you know, you know, <laughs> Right. Yeah, right. It's like you can learn certain tricks. You, you like, oh, man, back in the day I had all these tricks. I was like, you know, I don't know, whatever, you know, but like, um, but do you stop learning? Do you st- are you, do you have all the tricks you're going to have? Like for some reason, a number of investors, essentially the best way to describe it is they get intellectually lazy. Right. Well, I think you see that in, in most aspects of life. Once people f- find a few tricks that work, they just milk them until they don't work anymore. You know, yeah. it's like there's a few bands, they have one or two songs that hit, and then they just can never come up with anything creative. You see a couple athletes that play sports, and they got like one or two moves that work until they don't work anymore. And, and you see that are, with like, you see it in everything, I think. And there are certain moves, there are certain moves that will keep working no matter what, and that person can depend on them forever. But, but there are certainly a ton of moves that just, they get old over time and they're, they, they, their value diminishes. And, and, and then I add one more point, the guy who has the killer move, you know, let's call it Jordan's dunk from the free throw line or something crazy <laughs> like that. Right. Sure. But then right. who like, then learns to like post up like LeBron. Right. And then learns to do, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like, like, keep refreshing his game every freaking day and make his game as young as the next guy that's coming up. Um, that's when you have killer talent in an investor. Right. Right. So how do you see the evolution of the investment community? I mean, there's a lot of talk about the demise of the VC community, how it's going to go under some big contraction because, a lot. Most of these startups don't need this, that kind of money, and there and there are so many more angels now, and the angel community is becoming more active and organized. I mean, what, what are you seeing take place? Can you ask? A, I, I lost the question. I okay. mean, I know there's more angel activity going on. I know there's dynamics between venture investors and angel investors. What do you what do you say it again? What's well, I mean, do you think do do you think that the angel, uh, I mean, the angel community is going to start to take a is going to continue to take a bigger and bigger slice of the investment pie, and that VCs are going to slowly but surely get pushed to the edges because they're slower, they're like dinosaurs, and uh, the a- angels just move more quickly. Or, You're basically or saying, are VCs going to go extinct? Yeah. Yeah, well, so, not extinct because I don't think they're going to go stink. But I yeah. mean, are they going to be continue to be marginalized, or is this just a little short blip that they're going to come back so, in six months? And so there's two questions I heard there. One is, are seed guys going to take a bigger and bigger chunk of the overall funding pie? And then the other one was, are are VC guys going to continue to get mar- are going to get more and more marginalized? Right. The answer right. to number one is, seed guys are not taking any sub- substantive amount of the overall investment that's happening. Right. 
they're just do there's a ton more deals happening, but they're freaking small compared to what happens on the VC end. Okay. okay. So yeah. as far as total dollars going, VCs are a hundred times bigger. They're just huge. It's not even a close call. Right. Right. That said, getting your second question, angels, you know, let's call it the million dollar round in that neck of the woods, 500 to a million and a half or whatever, 750 to one and a quarter, whatever. The angel rounds are getting, the angels that are participating in getting shit done now, given the dynamics of how cheap it is to start a company and how, um, and, and, you know, all the dynamics that have happened in, in being able to innovate and get something out there and see if it works. Angels are marginalizing VCs. And the risk, the, the interesting risk-reward ratios are happening at the angel end. And by the time the VC comes in, there's a substantial amount of de-risking that's happened. And because right. of that, valuations on the VC world are going to go way, way up. There are not going to be as many VC deals as before because guess what? The ones that were risked and you didn't know if it was going to happen or not. Now we know, oh, that's a dud. You don't need to invest in it. So there's going to be fewer deals that are worthy of VC investment. The valuations are going to go up because they're de-risked. And, uh, you know, VCs are getting marginalized because of that. The, the lion's share of what's happening that's interesting. I mean, I shouldn't say it. That's a little bit over the top. But let's just say the angels are getting some love. There's some action going on there. There's some interesting stuff going on there. And the VC world is going through some, let's say, consolidation uh, because of these dynamics. And uh, there's going to be a lot of roadkill VCs because of it. Right, Jason, just to let you know, uh, we've done over an hour and a half at this stage. Yeah, I, I, think we're, I think we're pretty much done. Unless there's anything else you'd like to ask. Dude, you're going to have to break this up into four parts. <laughs> Most of our shows are an hour and a half, so it's it's hit the it's hit the good time for us. Travis, thanks thanks a lot for taking so much time to talk with us. It's been a great conversation, been a lot of fun, and I think that our listeners will really get a lot from this. I mean, it's you don't often hear uh, long in depth interviews with investors, and especially investors who have been entrepreneurs as well. Yeah. So I think this will be it should be interesting. Um, Seriously, I'm going to point people I know to this thing. Well, great. Like, I know about me. Just go there. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, well, that way you don't have to repeat yourself, right? You want to hear my story? Go, you want to know what I'm interested in? Yeah. Go to. Nobody go wants to, the- to sit and listen to me talk for an hour and a half without being able to pause or fast forward. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might be surprised. I think there are probably a lot of people going to be interested in hearing this and uh, listen the whole way through because it's a lot of great information. So, once again, Travis, thanks so much for your time. And I guess that's a wrap. We're out. 